besides a lifeguard, what else do you think of when you hear the word guard? Maybe somebody standing guard. There are security guards. There's the king's guard at the Buckingham Palace with their fuzzy hats. There's a soldier who keeps guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. You, know, you might also think of a face guard in football that protects teeth from getting knocked out. And then there's also the left guard who keeps the quarterback from getting knocked out. Maybe you're thinking of a mama bear who adamantly guards her cubs. Now, I share all of these examples because um, they, they, they will help us understand one of the roles of God's wisdom in our lives. Wisdom itself doesn't protect us from everything. Natural disasters still come. Difficult circumstances, death, they still come. However, wisdom does guard us from pitfalls that we'd go headfirst into without it, particularly self-inflicted kinds of dangers. Not only are we sinners who go their own way, away from God, but sometimes we also lack the ability to wisely discern future ramifications that may come from present-day actions. So the purpose of this passage in Proverbs 6 is to show us that without wisdom's guard, we will dishonor God and bring ourselves and others to ruin. Without this guard of wisdom, without this flag saying dangerous currents, we will dishonor God and bring ourselves and others to ruin. The Father in Proverbs intends with this map of godly wisdom to direct us and to direct his son around the pitfalls that he might face. Things that could ruin him in this life or eternity or both. This section in Proverbs, you might, you might remember we got a little bit out of order last week, but this section falls in between chapter 5's warning against sexual immorality and chapter 6's latter warning against adultery. So if we see it sandwiched between those two things, it's clear that this, this father's plea to his son is to fear the Lord, to walk in the path of righteousness, which leads to life and blessing. These warnings make sense in this section as a guard against ruinous things, ruinous paths, be it sexual immorality in chapter 5 or things like slothfulness in chapter 6. So for the sake of following this morning, this passage establishes four posts or four guards. Take, take, take the illustration that you, whatever seems best, four flags on the beach, four centuries standing guard. The first is a guard against flippant promises, verses 1 to 5. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, that's you. The, 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 the father in Proverbs, Solomon, is setting up this scenario. If this ever happens, if you ever become the guarantor of someone who is in debt and they default, if you co-sign for someone and it comes back on you, if you made a promise and now you find yourself in financial danger, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor 
Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. This seems wildly, wildly different and less clear than the exhortations to avoid the snare of sexual immorality or to avoid the path of wickedness. So why begin this series of potential, identifying potential pitfalls of a, of a scenario of helping manage someone else's debt? It seems like an odd place to start. But we need to understand Yahweh's economy. The economy of Israel had very specific rules that reflected God's, Yahweh's righteousness and benevolence. He built these things into their life together as a nation. A prime example would be, and a familiar one, is stated in Deuteronomy 24, 19, which is then put on display in the drama of Boaz and Ruth. Deuteronomy says, when you reap your harvest, when you're gathering in your harvest in your field, and forget a sheaf in the field, you forget some grain, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. They were to care for the poor in various ways and not, as Deuteronomy says, close their hand to their brother. They also had instructions on debt and charging interest. Exodus 22 says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. What, in what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So built into God's law was his compassion even to the level of establishing these standards when it comes to the pledges and money and lending. So why is Solomon urging his son to make a quick exit if he has made an agreement or pledge that could ruin him? The point is that Proverbs itself is very consistent when it comes to becoming the debtor for a stranger's debt. Here's what it says in chapter 11. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm. But he who hates striking hands, he who hates shaking on it, he who hates these quick agreements in pledge is secure. Or also Proverbs 17, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Or chapter 20, be not one of those who gives pledges, who put up security for debts. Now what do you think? Just take a moment, what do you think about that? Does it sound stingy, maybe, a little? More than that, is it Christ-like? You ask yourself, wasn't it Jesus who gave his very life for those who would never be able to pay him back? Doesn't he value the forgiving of debts, generosity? Wasn't he the one who said, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great? The key to squaring this passage with sacrificial Christian generosity towards those who cannot repay us lies in the fact that this has less to do with generosity and has more to do with the quickness and the flippancy that someone would enter into such an agreement. 
someone who is making promises left and right, co-signing loans at the drop of a hat with no thought, is very, very different than the one who intentionally weighs the risks and yet compassionately takes on those risks regardless. Using Jesus as the example, is he one who is quickly and flippantly agreeing to these things? Did he flippantly take on our debt and thoughtlessly put himself in danger? No, instead he with specific intent and thoughtful compassion took on the shame and the danger of giving his life and righteousness to us on the cross. Now that is a noble and a worthy thing, something that we as Christians want to embody. I want want to be like Jesus in this way as we lay, lay our lives down for others. But what Proverbs is describing is not noble, nor is it wise, which is why the father encourages his, his son to flee it if it happens. If, if you've mistakenly uh, made all, all these sorts of promises, these, you've bound yourself in these financial obligations, quickly go to the creditor, plead with them like the persistent widow or the persistent friend needing bread in Luke 11. He gives this picture of a bird trapped in a net or a gazelle trapped in a snare. All they're focused on is getting out. Get out of there before it's too late. Now, that's not to say you don't own up to the responsibility, but it is to say that it's wise to be humble and ask for mercy before it's too late and you are brought to ruin. So godly wisdom here is set as a guard against these flippant kind of promises. It's also a guard against the sluggard's impoverishment. Many of you are familiar with this section. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You'll notice two things here. The writer is no longer addressing his son. He's speaking about a proverbial someone else, this sluggard. And you'll also notice that this is a bit more intense than a simple warning against rash agreements. This one is even more consequential, which kind of matches this theme and this tone of this part of the chapter. Each of these warnings is getting more and more severe as we go along. Here, the son is introduced to the sluggard. This, although this is the first mention of the sluggard in Proverbs, Proverbs speaks a lot about the sluggard. The sluggard is an archetype of a person who you want to never become. Why? Because he is the premier example of a wasted life. Here's what the other sections in Proverbs say about the sluggard. The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard does not plow in autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. We could go on as there's lots of other places in this book that decry the way of the sluggard, but I think generally we get the gist of who, kind of the caricature of this person. 
The sluggard is a burden to others, a threat to himself, and a disgrace considering what God has created him for and enabled him to do. What should he do? He should humbly go to the small ant and observe her. And just picture somebody getting down all the way on the ground, they're level with the ground, and they just are tracing this one of, of this line of ants. They're watching one. She's industrious. She doesn't need to be given orders. She's diligent. The sluggard would do well to emulate this measly ant so that he can become wise. How long, the father asked, when will you wake up? When will you get up and work? Rather than going, though, to the level of condemning the sluggard, the father admonishes him and he warns him about what his sluggishness will earn. It will earn want and poverty. They will rush upon him and he will have no choice but to surrender to the fact that his own idleness has brought him to ruin. Bruce Waltke says in a, a very concise way, the sluggard loses by small surrenders. The sluggard loses by small surrenders. That really sums up the sluggard here because he doesn't realize what he's squandering. He folds his hands, he takes a series of naps which become habits which eventually bring him to the doorstep of his own poverty. Watch out for those small surrenders such that you are not like the sluggard. You can probably think of lots of ways to apply this, lots of examples. But lots of small breaks or distractions at work may result in warnings or possibly leaving you jobless. Prioritizing frivolous spending over keeping up with your other financial obligations may put you in a difficult position. Don't waste the time that God has so graciously given you and selfishly spend it putting off responsibilities. God has wisdom for us even at this level, and we should listen to him. Without going too far out of Proverbs here, without going out of bounds of what this text is specifically saying, I just want to make an application to our spiritual health as believers, particularly as it relates to suffering and or persecution and other difficulties. I'm mainly studying this room and borrowing from the example that I've seen of other people that compels, I think compels us to act wisely and differently. When things are going well, isn't it easy to sit in that and enjoy that, giving no thought to the future? Now, there's a place for rejoicing and God's mercy to us. Rejoicing when he lifts for a moment our suffering. But how can you prepare for difficulty ahead? How is it that you can prepare for those things? How can you look at the ant and see her industriousness and diligence and apply that to our pursuit of God, our communion with him, our dwelling on heaven, our eager waiting for him to return like the virgin whose lamps stay lit and they don't run out of oil or the servants who are busy working for the master while he's away. Remember that the sluggard loses by a series of small surrenders. I'll do that later. This is not important right now. If we're dozing, we may need to set our hand 
towards preparation. Not that we will endure those difficulties when they come by our own strength. It's like, I'm ready, I'm prepared enough for this. That's not necessarily true, but I think you'd admit that there's a difference between, again, thinking of people in this room who have watched endure vast amounts of suffering and, and doing it in a remarkable kind of way. But there's a difference between those whose feet are planted on the promises of God and those who are not. Literally like a life built upon the rock or a life built upon the sand. It's, it's the waves that test and prove what the foundation is made out of. Wisdom is a guard against the sluggard's impoverishment. It is also, thirdly, a guard against calamitous wickedness. As I mentioned before, we're stepping kind of deeper and deeper into this passage, things that are more harmful and more consequential to the son that the father is just pleading with him to stay aware of. He says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks his eyes, he signals with his feet, he points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. We spent a bit of time last week on the way of the wicked, so we won't spend too much time here this morning. But this is just another, another take, another portrayal of that same way of wickedness. It is a wicked man or a worthless person who sins with his whole body. You see the imagery here, his feet, his hands, his speech, his heart. He, he deceives, he blames, he conjures up plans, he sows discord. He has a heart as black as coal, so to speak. It's unclear, at least to me, whether this section is meant to be a warning to not become this person, this wicked man, or beware of someone such as this. Either way, Solomon is kind of pulling back the curtain on how wicked this man really is while also letting us in on the secret of the future of the wicked. Before we get there, you may wonder why the author calls this person a worthless person. Why is he called worthless? It's true that he's good for nothing because all he causes is chaos and pain, particularly in the lives of others. However, if you look back at the other times this term is used in scripture, it proves that this person is not just good for nothing uh, as far as worth is concerned, but this person is detestable to God. Bruce Waltke says again, in various places in the Old Testament, the term is used of troublemakers of all sorts, revolutionaries against God and his people, against his anointed king, against justice, community solidarity, social propriety, and even life itself. I'll just give one example. Take the sons of Eli, for example. Eli is the priest to whom Samuel comes. Um, but he has these sons who are also priests who are committing sexual sin with the, woman who, the women who served at the tent of meeting, the place where God dwelled with his people. Unspeakable things. And, and in 1 Samuel 2, it says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
Indeed, they did not. This worthless man is the person who hates God, who opposes him, who cares nothing for God's image bearers, who will stop at nothing to achieve his wicked plans. One who simply doesn't care about the wrongness or the fallout of his or her plans or actions. Doing evil seems like a profession for this person, and there's, no, there's just no remorse in it. Psalm 14 describes a similar kind of person calling him a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. And this is where the author wants to make clear to us that this person, whether a person you will be tempted to become or the person who may harm you in one form or another, has a very certain future. At the end of the section, he says, Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. And the first thing that my mind jumps to from this past week was wildfires in Hawaii that were spread very rapidly with high winds. It's like calamity will come upon you suddenly, this, this worthless man. Unlike the possible threat of poverty to the sluggard, the future of this kind of person is sudden and complete destruction, dashed to pieces like a porcelain plate thrown onto the concrete. There is no repair for this person, no remedy. The finality of this worthless man's end unmistakably points to the reality that the consequences of his sin are eternal. This one will not receive an admonition from the father. Instead, the father condemns him here. And it might sound like if you're thinking of a conversation between a father and a son happening like this, it might sound like a kind of like a scare you straight sort of tactic. This is what happens to the worthless man. Don't be like him. But the reality is that Godly wisdom will stand guard for us if we know that sin is punishable by death. That the only thing that sin earns us, the wages that it gives us, is death. And that God will not let the guilty go unpunished. And we as Christians should not envy anyone in this worthless person's position in any form. We have been given the clear foresight of Psalm 73. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now you have to think, what we were singing this morning, when I went to the sanctuary of God, I beheld him. I saw him for who he truly is. And then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. No matter how enticing a self-indulgent lifestyle or an I-do-what-I-want lack of restraint may seem to us, we would do well to stay away because the end for the worthless man is as plain as day to the wise and to the understanding. He will be judged. His calamity will fall upon him suddenly. 
Because these are the first three guards in the passage. And as the intensity of this passage increases, we're led to that final guard. I haven't thought about it to, as we're coming to this, this last, this last guard is weighty to me, but um, when I think about where we've been so far, it seems like uh, as a father to a son that this could be kind of the last, this is, if, if anything keeps you from these pitfalls, let it be this. Okay, you might, you might get tangled up in these financial agreements. Uh, you might be kind of lulled into the way of the sluggard. You might see this worthless man. He's free to do whatever he wants. If those don't deter you, let this be your guard. Let it stop you in your tracks. Let it keep you from going the way of the wicked. It's the guard of Yahweh's hatred. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. We'll pause there for a moment. Moving from six to seven, or from other, other passages, go two to three or three to four, is a tool that the wisdom writers use to elevate this, whatever they're about to say, elevate their importance and to grab our attention. It's not saying that there are only six. Oh, scratch that. There's actually only seven things that the Lord hates. It's saying... Listen, these are six things that the Lord hates. We'll add one. I want you to know about these. What are these detestable things, these abominations that the Lord hates? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This list of sins is not meant to be exhausted. We know of lots of others that are mentioned in Scripture. In fact, there are things not included in this list, like idolatry, that God does explicitly say that he hates, like in Deuteronomy 13, that are not on this list. However, these are meant to be a sum of the sorts of things that God despises. Some of you may have heard of the seven deadly sins. These are not the seven deadly sins. That was a list identified by the medieval church, which served as this baseline of just kind of identifying these things that give rise to all other sins, anger, envy, greed, sloth, gluttony, lust, pride. Again, this list in Proverbs is not that list, which is also instructive, but, but what does the writer in Proverbs choose to focus on here? He seems to focus on particularly God ignoring, God denying, characteristic sins, many of which involve lots of collateral damage, if you will. Their ramifications are far-reaching. Haughty eyes, which is God denying arrogance and self-importance. We know that a river of awful things can flow from this sort of heart posture. A puffed-up pride that cares nothing for God or others. A glory robber, a lying tongue who has no regard for the truth of God, who sputters falsehood and deceives intentionally. Hands that shed innocent blood, which is someone who simply has no regard for God's image bearers and is reckless with his destruction of life. A heart that devises wicked plans, which includes this, just this preemptive disregard for 
God's plans and God's standards. Feet that make haste to run to evil is one who is quick to do wrong, and there's just no hesitation. A false witness who would, before others, tear down someone with lies, whether to simply inflict pain or boost his or herself in the eyes of others. And then the one who sows discord, who has no regard for relationships, such that his or her actions could even tear apart the closest of brothers. God hates these things. God hates the casting aside of unborn lives. God hates the planning and execution of school shootings. God hates the bravado of men and women who seek to claim praise for themselves on a large or a small stage. God hates the one who has no problem covering up and deceiving to hide their sin. He hates someone who misrepresents others in court or before their peers. All of these have a a high-handed, I don't care what God thinks sort of nature to them. In fact, they very much resemble the character of Satan himself. And those who walk in these habits invite God's wrath. Recently, probably about a month, a month or so ago, we had some ground bees at our house. And just the word might scare some of you because you've experienced this before. Uh, Eleanor got stung. I got stung. When we finally found out where they were coming from, the kids were instructed to not go near this area of the yard because ground bees are no joke. Those, those little suckers hurt, and they hurt bad, and they come at you with a whole army, it seems like. Here, Solomon is warning his sons of the greatest danger of all, the wrath of God. God is not aimlessly angry, he wants his son to know. Son, there are things that Yahweh hates. I want you to know about them. This is the most dangerous thing of all. And uh, parents, if you've ever listened to uh, Sovereign Grace's theology song on sin, it kind of present, it, it presents sin. As, it is scary. It's terrifying because of what it leads to. Now consider who it is that Solomon is talking about. We could, we could spend a lot of time focusing on here are the things that God hates versus who is the God that hates them. This is Yahweh, the one true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who was also Israel's redeemer. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt and into the beautiful and fruitful promised land and had caused them to flourish under King David and under Solomon. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he told them a few very important things, that he's merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where, though, did he tell them that? Where was it that he said, I am these things? He told them from the peak of a smoldering mountain, Mount Sinai, where thunder and fire signified his utterly holy presence. This mighty God is merciful and gracious towards his people. And yet he also, without contradicting himself, without being two-faced, burns with hot anger against the uncleanness of sin. 
Do you remember what he said to Moses to tell the Israelites as they encamped at the base of the mountain? He said, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall, shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. The Lord is merciful, son, but he is not to be presumed upon. He does, in fact, and always hate sin. There should be no stronger deterrent for us or a guard for us against sin than God's holy hatred against it. Sin is not and will never be benign. It is, in fact, deadly, and no one is more opposed to it than God. We haven't gotten this far in Proverbs yet, but listen to Proverbs 8. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Sincerely fearing the Lord involves hating evil. On hating sin, Eric Raymond says, do you hate sin? Do you hate what sin is doing? Every tear, every ounce of pain comes from sin. It fuels every hearse, every grieving widow wails because of its might. Sin provokes every wail of hurt. Every bit of shame is sourced in sin. Every regret and burn mark upon the soul is the handiwork of sin. Every biting word is loaded with the sting of sin. Every prideful thought is concocted upon the conveyor belt of sin. Every bit of injustice is deputized by general sin. Every betrayed heart aches because sin has made its presence known. Every bit of corruption is a footprint of sin. Every bit of neglect demonstrates sin's attention. It's all sin. Sin is the greatest evil on this planet. Will you not hate it? Will you also rejoice when sin doesn't win the day? And will you also long for it to be eradicated from ourselves and our world? Paul delivers a similar warning as this proverb passage when he's writing to the Roman Christians and he's establishing what our primary relationship with God is, which is sons, and what our relationship to sin should look like. In Romans 8, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Living according to the flesh and practicing that which God hates proves an utter absence of faith in King Jesus, which will result in death. The alternative is to establish our new relationship with sin according to the Spirit. Your new relationship with sin, as John Owen famously puts it, is this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Wage war against your sin. Did you know that this morning you are actively or passively engaged in a war with sin? 
We put sin to death in us. Christ has given us power over it by his spirit. We don't coddle it. We don't pass over it. We don't ignore it. We don't approve it. We ask the spirit to search out wicked ways in us. We look keenly at ourselves. We ask others to observe and evaluate. We deny ourselves and our old desires. We confess those sins, bring them to the open, not simply because we're afraid, but because we want nothing stopping us from from having Christ and from following after Christ and, and actually living. If sin is what threatens to harden our hearts and cause us to turn from God, we would do well to look at this morning in Proverbs and feel the full weight of Yahweh's hatred of these things. Why? Because it will serve as a guard for you. It will guard you from certain pitfalls. I don't want to gloss over, though, what Paul mixes with these exhortations to put sin to death. Listen to Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. It's very strong words. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So distance yourself from these things. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. He's talking to Christians, urging them to not let up here. But what is he saying? In these two, you once walked. It is very true that you were once marked by what Yahweh hates. Scripture says that you were his enemy. But that's not you anymore. So don't live like it is. Live in the freedom given you by Jesus. Church, we aren't at Mount Sinai, but, but in a sense, we were very much present at Golgotha. And with the eyes of faith, we have seen God's holy hatred against sin in our tortured Savior as our sin and its punishment were put upon him. The things in us that were abominable to God, that he hated, he took upon himself. Jesus became sin for us. That's what it took. And as the old song says, it causes me to tremble. The fear of the Lord and worship of our risen king who conquered sin should be the strongest of deterrents for us. Away from sinning against him in any form. We tremble. We tremble at God's holy wrath against sin. And we adore Jesus for having freed us from its clutch. We adore him. And that's, what we, that's why we call this a celebration gathering. There is warning here this morning for us. Son, don't go this way. These are things that Yahweh hates. Let there be, let there be a, a, a mark, a line around Mount Sinai where God burns in his holiness. Do not go there in your heart, in secret. Do not go there in your actions. Stay away. But know this, Jesus has freed you from the clutch of sin. 
He has given you all that you need to not be mastered by sin and to not come into the way of God's wrath. He has stepped into the way of God's wrath for you. That's why we celebrate. That's why we rejoice. We rejoice, though, with this background of Yahweh will not clear the guilty, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us. He will forgive those who humbly know this is Yahweh, this is, he, this is he who gave his son for me. And it was horrifying, the wrath that was poured upon him. And to know that that wrath is not for me. Which is why we come to the Lord's Supper each Sunday to remind ourselves uh, the cost was very high. The cost, not just for all of our sins put in the pot collectively, but also the cost for my sin specifically was very high. And yet, there's an invitation to enjoy and rejoice in the fact that the cost has been paid. Uh, I pray that just the, the quick glimpse of Yahweh's fierce anger is enough to help us enjoy this all the more.